Welcome to Worship Matters, a podcast that deals with the intricacies of planning worship with and for your faith community. I'm Dr. Derek Weber, Director of Preaching Ministries at Discipleship Ministries, which is a general agency of the United Methodist Church located in Nashville, Tennessee. We developed this podcast a few months ago as a way to discuss how to plan for worship experiences in the local church following the common lectionary and to help local churches find ways to provide and plan for exciting times of worship. But then the pandemic hit and everything changed. And so we began talking about a a range of other issues. And then we find ourselves in a second pandemic, and that is the pandemic of racism. We at Discipleship Ministries have been trying to provide resources and opportunities for conversation about how we might in the local church and across the denomination talk about these issues of racism. So that's where we are. We are still closed. Our building is closed and we are recording these from our homes, but we continue to to provide materials. Now, today I have with me as a special guest, Dr. Eric Barreto, who is the Frederick and Margaret L. Weyerhaeuser Associate Professor of New Testament at Princeton Theological Seminary. And he is also at his home recording that. And so we're glad that you are here. So Dr. Barreto, if you wouldn't mind, just tell us a little bit about yourself and and your ministry journey. Yeah, absolutely. And thanks for having me on and for uh, these really important conversations. Uh, I've been teaching at Princeton Theological Seminary for four years. I teach the New Testament. Before I was teaching here, I taught at Luther Seminary in St. Paul, Minnesota uh, for seven years and then a whole bunch of schooling before that. Uh, The other important part of my story is that I'm a child of uh, of Puerto Rico. I was born there, lived there until I was nine years old. And we moved a bunch after that throughout different parts of the United States. But there's something about that place um, and the historical realities of being a a Puerto Rican that has fueled so much of my own academic work and the preaching and the teaching that I do. Uh, So now we live in Princeton. Uh, with my wife and two children. And so again, delighted to be here with you all. Well, we appreciate you taking the time. The reason I contacted Dr. Barreto is because I read an article that that he wrote uh, that appeared in Luther Seminary's newsletter, Faith Plus Lead or Faith and Lead. I know, don't know how to actually pronounce that newsletter. But the title of that article was Preaching About Racism in America, What Comes Next? So I was intrigued as you're in your introduction, you talk about the preaching that I do. Tell me a little bit, as a New Testament scholar, what is the connection in your mind, both with New Testament studies, but also preaching? Uh, how much do you do on your own and, and how do you teach those that connection? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I felt called when I was a teenager to, to ministry. And at that point, my imagination was such that I thought that that meant I would be behind a pulpit every single Sunday at a local church. Um, But so often God has a different set set of ideas about what the call might be. Uh, The call was real. It's just that I didn't know the the breadth of places that God might be calling me to. So the work that I do in studying the New Testament and teaching the New Testament and writing about it and teaching about it uh, for me is a lot about equipping uh, both pastors and lay people to be faithful and imaginative readers of these ancient texts. So for me, that intersection between New Testament studies and preaching is really, really important. 
And it's been important in my teaching at Luther Seminary, now Princeton Seminary. And part of what I'm doing is I'm not training a bunch of biblical scholars or a bunch of future biblical scholars. What I'm most often doing is teaching a bunch of people who will be leading in worship, who will be um, creating Sunday school curricula, who will be uh, teaching children and youth and, and uh, senior citizens, right, about the scriptures and what, how God speaks to us through these texts. Uh, there are people who are specialists in preaching. So what I see my own role is to think about how we draw upon these stories in the New Testament, these texts in the New Testament, to inspire us, to lead us into the proclamation that we do on Sunday mornings. And for me, a big category, an important category for me has been this notion of imagination. So what we're doing in preaching, I tell my students, is not going through line by line and explaining all the different Greek tenses and, and all the different forms of rhetoric along the way. That's all very, I love that stuff. It's super interesting. What we're doing in preaching, though, is, is bringing people into the imaginative world that these texts cast before us to bring us into the imagination that the gospel of Luke brings us into, the gospel of John brings us into. And less because there's always a one-to-one -one correlation between what these texts are writing about and the way that our world is shaped and the things that we are experiencing, but because in that encounter between these ancient texts, these fascinating stories, and the world in which we live, I think we can hear the spirit moving and speaking to us, giving us a sense of what the world what the world is but also what the world might be so for me what we do in the new testament studies classroom and the way that it translates into preaching best is when my students can invite folks who probably have read some of these texts way more than any of us have right have been reading these texts for a lifetime but to invite them to bring their full selves into these stories to bring their full imaginations to these stories and to let these texts transform them and transform how they see the world, a world that um, sometimes feels like a world of, of oppression and death. But with the, the kind of lenses that scripture can provide for us, we can also see in this world the possibilities of resurrection and new life, these promises that God has made for us a long time ago. So I get to preach every once in a while in lots of different churches. Um, um, it's, it's one of the real delights of my work to, um, to do the academic work, but then also to be invited into a community and to be invited into that space to say, what is God saying to us in this moment? Not just through these ancient texts, but through the testimony of people who are telling us about the moment and also telling us what these texts mean to them. It's a, it's a thrilling uh, intersection of the ancient world and the modern world and the witness of our neighbors that I think is really productive and powerful. So you're not setting aside the historical question, you know, mm -hmm. yeah. who was the historical right. Jesus and what did he actually say? But but you're blending it with uh, the interpretive act of saying, I'm going to live into that today. Uh, and right. my real goal is not necessarily to figure out what happened then, but what I can do today with these stories. Yeah, I think there is great power in that kind of historical critical reading of these texts. Um, and especially in the ways that it, um, that kind of approach to reading scripture, to reading the New Testament, illuminates how different the world of antiquity is in our world. Uh, that the structures of the world, the structures of meaning making are so mm -hmm. different. So that historical work is so important so that we just don't assume 
that Jesus lived in a world that looks just like ours, right? That the structures of meaning making, right, were the same. Um, and that the historical work, I think, especially in preaching, necessarily is paired with this careful listening we're doing in our communities. So the testimony and the witness, both of the people gathered in front of us on a Sunday morning or uh, on the other side of a Zoom camera um, these days, but also those neighbors who are not sitting in our pews, those neighbors who are telling very different stories about the character of God, very different stories about how uh, the spirit is moving in their midst. So it's, again, it's that intersection of listening to, to history, to listening to these texts, to listening to the stories of the people in our, in our congregations, but also those stories being woven and told outside of the walls of our church. It's in the meaning of all these that I think the spirit speaks to us most clearly. So, but it is in that listening where sometimes the problems come in is listening to our culture and bringing in our issues. When, when, when a preacher attempts to speak to or speak into perhaps the reality of the world in which we live, they often find resistance in the congregation and they say things like, let's don't get political and all of that kind of stuff. So, so how do you help a preacher overcome that resistance to speaking about what's really going on in the world around us? It's a challenge because I think different Christian communities think quite differently about what the worship space, what the time of worship, what the preaching moment is, is for. I think there are certain traditions in this country, um, especially in minoritized communities in the African-American church and immigrant churches, where the preaching moment is fundamentally about naming the truths of the lives of those in these communities. And that it's not enough to transport us to some other time and place. It's not enough to, to liberate us from the, the, the heaviness of the moment. That worship and preaching in a lot of these traditions encompass and embrace the frailties of the world and the difficulties that congregants are facing. I think in other church traditions, especially those um, where you find more majority culture folks, mm-hmm. I think church sometimes feels more like an escape. It's a way to get away from the grind of work and school. It's a way to kind of uh, hover above the ground maybe a bit and, and liberate us. And I think there's room for both of those. I think sometimes church should be a sanctuary where we can um, find deliverance from all that weighs us down. But I think there's also space for church to be a prophetic moment where we name clearly that heaviness that we bring with us, that even if we try to leave at the door on Sunday mornings, it's always with us on our shoulders. So one of the things then is for us to, for preachers to, to help congregations to think about what is the space even for? What is preaching mm. even for? And I think another step to take then, and I've been trying to teach my students this along the way as well, is that I think that there's a difference between um, what's political and what's partisan. Yeah. I think when we preach the good news and we preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, a gospel uh, of, a, of a man executed by the Roman Empire for trying to cause sedition, uh, a gospel about somebody who brings healing in broken places, uh, a gospel that promises at the end that the world's going to be turned upside down, uh, a gospel that starts in the gospel of Luke with a woman proclaiming that the powerful will be brought down from their thrones, that that gospel cannot be anything but political. 
And by political here, we mean that it has, it impinges and it, it impacts how we relate to one another, how we understand our relationships to one another. And that has often some partisan dimensions to it, but it's not the same thing. I think if our preaching only um, invites those of us who are in the same political party as I am to cheer along and to push away those who are in a different political party, then I think Mm -hmm. we've missed the boat there. But if our preaching brings us into these moments where we're asking deep questions about how we treat one another and what kind of how we structure the world towards justice and equality, that's necessarily and always a political question. The promise of resurrection in the New Testament isn't just about the future. It certainly is about that. It's a promise that we will live beyond our deaths. But it's also a promise that starts in the moment. I think, for example, of Luke chapter 4 and Jesus' first sermon. Um, he, uh, he preaches his first sermon and then his neighbors try to throw him off a cliff. And I always try to remind my students that that's one moment. You don't want to ask, what would Jesus do at your first call? But there's something really striking that happens in that sermon, and that's that Jesus um, proclaims that today this, 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 this has been fulfilled in your hearing. He reads from Isaiah, and he doesn't say tomorrow this will be fulfilled, or next week it will be fulfilled, or after the cross, or when I'm resurrected, or when I return again. But no, today this has been fulfilled. This immediacy, this tangibility, this relatability to the gospel is, is unavoidable. And that's always going to lead us to political questions. The question is, how do we preach into those moments in a way that doesn't, again, just invite applause from those who already agree with us and boos from those who disagree with us? But the, the, the call of the pastor, the call of the preacher, is to bring all of us into a different imaginative space. Uh, even those of us who, I, who we think are, I've got it all wrong, they need to be transformed and transported and certainly those of us, those of those who, with whom I disagree, there are places where they've got the gospel right and I don't. Yeah. Uh, isn't it too, in part, a persistence of vision, of, of continuing mm-hmm. on and not just a, a momentary yeah. speaking? For, for example, um, because of the events in Minneapolis um, with George Floyd, Almost everybody made a response to that of some sort. It, it was almost expected. Um, and one of the things that we've done at Discipleship Ministries, I've been curating sermons that people have spoken in light of that. But I think, but what struck me about your article, um, and that is, what do we happen? What do we do after the first mm-hmm. sermon about racism mm-hmm. and, and that pandemic? How do we how do we go on from that? And and so what I hear you saying here is is that it's not just speaking into this moment now and then there's another moment, but we have to continue to speak to that moment and, and we go on yeah what were you trying to get at with with your with your question what's next uh in the article that you wrote um it was prompted by a friend of mine so mary brown who's um a good friend of mine and who's been helping lead this uh church new blog where the, my piece was, was first posted, she was thinking about pastors who took a really courageous step that Sunday after the events in Minneapolis and the death of George Floyd, um, that many pastors for the first time felt compelled to preach about what happened in that moment, to talk about systemic racism, to talk about white supremacy, 
in communities where perhaps they had hesitated to do so before. So one, um, one inspiration for this was to, to cheer people on, to say that this is really important, that that first step is vital, to name the ways that um, they might've gotten some applause, they probably got a lot of pushback. And I think I named in the article that, that worse than the, the nasty emails are probably the, the silence of people, the simmering anger, the simmering rage that they know is behind that silence. But it was also then to ask then what's next? What comes after um, you take this first step? Preaching is really powerful. It can change lives. It can make a massive difference. And our words can only go so far too. Both of those things are true. Our words can only go so far. So if we want our churches to grapple deeply with the legacies of white supremacy and racism, um, this isn't something that a one-off sermon can do or even a series of sermons can do. What the sermon can do is to create the grounds of possibility, to, to create some ground where we see how the biblical texts and the story of our local community come together to address the, the realities of white supremacy and racism in our world today. And then the hard work really starts and the hard work is relational and it's communal. Uh, it's what happens at the deacons meeting. It's what happens at the synod meeting. It's what happens um, in, in the church visit in the, in the hospital. It's, it's what happens in the informal conversations after church when we are able to gather once again, that that embodied relational communal work is, is the really hard work that we have to do. So yeah, it's incredibly courageous that so many people took that step for the first time. It's also true that many preachers have been doing this for a long time, especially preachers in minoritized communities. And it may be that white preachers might need to lean into the insights uh, that, are, uh, that are siblings in the faith that have been leading in these communities, have been nurturing for, for generations. Um, but, but it is really difficult ground to trot on. And I think that that article, that little essay was about both noting a word of encouragement that this was the right thing to do. And also to say, we got to figure out what's next because the work has only just started. So I certainly agree that, that um, the conversations that continue beyond the, the preaching moment, beyond the worship moment, even uh, are where this really gets worked out. But yet I, as the director of preaching ministries, I want to I want to kind of stay focused on that yeah. a little bit and to say, well, what does this mean for my next sermon and my next yeah. sermon? I hear, you know, and I agree, we, we can't just check it off, say I did that, I did my racism right. sermon, but yeah. um, so we have to continually be looking at our language and our images right. and our structures and and to begin talk about how I can well, go back to the imagination that you were you spoke about earlier, and to talk about this imaginative reality that's that's bigger and better, perhaps more redeemed than the reality in which we're actually living in, and how do we continue to transform that? So, so I'm continually casting that vision about that's what right. is possible. I wonder if there's an analog, right? That um, you can't just do although we try often many churches like a stewardship Sunday sermon yeah, and say exactly. done and done. That's not, that's that's right. work particularly well. If, yeah. if we, if this moment passes and what we've achieved is that we have a racism Sunday where we do our, our preaching for once a year, I think that we've, we've missed the moment and we've missed an, a really yeah. vital opportunity. So one really um, practical way that I invite preachers um, 
to start doing this work, not just, um, you know, when, when these terrible events happen and they will continue to happen, but instead that they um, do an audit of, of their bookshelves and of the websites they, 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 they go to, to to look for resources for their own preaching, to look at their bookshelves and see what communities are represented there and what voices are not present there. And to find ways to surround themselves with the voices and testimonies of those who see the world quite differently than we do. That makes a massive difference, not because you have to say the word race or racism or white supremacy in every sermon, but that in in subtle but powerful ways, in the voices that we choose to highlight, in the stories that we choose to tell, in the interpretations that we choose to, to foreground, we model for our communities what it means to, to listen to the testimony of our neighbors. And if we foreground the testimony of the oppressed and we foreground the testimony of those uh, who suffered most at the hands of the powerful, then that's a way to nurture a kind of community that will do the same, not just on Sunday mornings when you're preaching, but in the daily walk through work and school and community as well. You wrote um, in the article, this, this amazing quote that I've been living with ever since I read it uh, a few weeks ago. It said, our aim as preachers is not just to be right. Our goal is not just getting the right answer or just getting accolades from folks who agree with us. Our hope is love. Then you went on from there to describe what that means. Is, is that what you mean by this ongoing conversation, this relationship that we do this out of love, love of our community, the community we're called to preach to? but also the wider community that we somehow have to learn to listen to. Yeah, I think that's right. And it's, um, it's fundamentally, I think, about what drives us. And I love a lot of things about social media. I'm on there all the time. But I think one of the things that social media can nurture in us is this, um, this yearning to get likes and those hearts on mm. Twitter to get retweeted. Um, because it affirms that we're right. It affirms that we were on the right side. It affirms that, um, I mean, it's like getting an A in a class. It's like, it's like gold star. And there's something really deep in us that yearns for that so much, but that, that feeling that, that dopamine hit, that feeling of being right is so fleeting and doesn't do much to serve our neighbors. So for preachers, I wonder if, and for me as well, to, to, to reorient myself, the goal is not um, to get all the right answers, to get that gold star, to get that A plus, but instead that every word that I speak and every step I take in this world, um, helps proliferate the world with the love of God, the kind of love that, that heals a sick and brings the dead back to life. Uh, the kind of love that transforms me and you and all kinds of communities and here, right. It's, and I talk a little bit about this, right. It's not the kind of sappy, you know, sappy love about, you know, it's, it's that it's, it's so fleeting. It's like a, a sugary pop song, right? It's, it's this kind of embodied grounded love. And they, I thought today in particular, um, so today when we're recording, this is the day of um, John Lewis's burial. And he wrote a piece for the New York times, um, an opinion piece to be published on the day of his funeral, which is an extraordinary step to take on its own. Yeah. But in there, I feel like you see a model of this kind of persistent, uh, liberative love, a love for uh, the neighbor that 
um, is deeply unmerited. So here's somebody who's, who's paid a deep price with his own body for the sake of his neighbors. And at the end of his life, um, he is not full of resentment and bitterness over uh, where the country has fallen short, where others have fallen short. Instead, he passes the baton and says, now you, the rest of you, go on loving one another. And in that love, create something more beautiful, something that looks more like that beloved community that John Lewis always seemed to talk about. So that's the kind of love we're talking about, the kind of love that stands, that marches, that demands that our neighbors are treated equally, and not because it's the right partisan thing to do, but because of our deep commitment to the, uh, to the flourishing of God's children. Um, I think it's that kind of love that we need to keep turning back to. Um, and that means then that if, if people don't like what we're preaching, then it takes us to a moment of reflection to wonder if it's, it, it's not about whether you were right or wrong. It's not whether about whether um, you had the right exegesis or the right point to make in the moment. Instead, the question that should be driving us is, are the words that I am speaking and the words that I'm sharing loving my neighbors, both of those, both those folks sitting in my pews, but those who would never step foot in my church. Am I proliferating that love of God that changes the world? Help me understand where truth comes in. You talked Mm -hmm. about not wanting to let being right be the focus, but being, but loving is, is what drives us. But where does truth enter? And if part of what we're doing is we're proclaiming truth. Yeah. That sounds, on the surface at least, it sounds to lean more toward right than mm-hmm. it does toward love. Yeah. Um, so, so where does truth fit in? That's a great question. I, and I've been thinking about it recently. There's, uh, there's what, like a conspiracy theory a day about the pandemic, oh, about yeah. anything, right? About yeah. medicine and everything. So it, this feels like a time when truth um, is so needed, right? But I think mm-hmm. truth... Uh, is characterized less by the the volume of the voice of the one who is speaking, right? It's less about who is so confident in their rightness, somebody driven by being correct and is willing to be loud about it, and more about the truths that knit communities together, the kind of truths that make a difference for how we live with one another. Um, So for truth is not this abstract, notion, right, that there's uh, some like platonic ideal somewhere that we're trying to reach for. But instead, this is, the truth is about the kind of communities that we're trying to build. Truth is about the promises that God has made. Truth is about hearing the way that God has been faithful, especially in minoritized and oppressed communities. It's, it's that persistence of God's justice and God's righteousness. Um, truth is vital, But in the end, God hasn't called us to be right so much as God has called us to be loving. And sometimes being loving means telling hard truths. And it means exposing the broken lies that that wreck the world. But fundamentally, it's still about love. It's not about being right. Or, as you said, about binding together rather than tearing apart. Uh, even, Even when the truth does hurt from time to time, but mm-hmm. the ultimate goal is to draw in, is, is yeah. to reconnect with that. 
I had on my list to ask what advice you might give, but I think you've already given it. The advice is to listen and to see who we're listening to and pay attention. Is there anything else in particular that you would suggest for the preacher today dealing with um, the untruths, the conspiracy, but also with uh, the evil that seems to be separating us so much? I I think this is a moment for preachers to be bold, to be courageous. And I think the other bit is that so often our, our preaching isn't so much about, it's sometimes not about convincing people, right? It's uh, often the people gathered in our churches are people predisposed. I mean, they, they like something about this community. They like something about our preaching. They like something about what's happening in this community. There's something that's drawn them to that place. But what preaching can sometimes do, I think, in really powerful ways is give us uh, new words for things that we already kind of knew, new imaginations for things we kind of felt somewhere. We, we felt like we understood, but then when the preacher can, with the help of the biblical text, just bring new light to this, some, this hunch that I had, this feeling that I had. Mm. And I think there's real power in that. And so often it's this, it's this more subtle relational drawing together and saying, have we thought about it like this? Have we, have you ever read this text in this way? So I think this is a time to be bold, to be courageous. Um, but above all, to be, to be loving and caring for one another. I think it's, it's about who we pay attention to, whose stories we tell, whose stories we trust fundamentally and the ways that we model that on Sunday mornings in the pulpit are just are really formative for us. Um, it's a powerful moment. I, I, I tell my students, when else in the world do we sit voluntarily and let someone talk at us for right. 15, 20, and some other churches, 40 minutes right. without interacting, without me tweeting about it or, or putting something on Facebook about it? The, the, the precious amount of time that people are investing in us is one that we should hold tenderly because it is a fragile space. Um, so we should bring... Uh, all our best education, all our best thinking, all the best research and thinking that we've done, but fundamentally bring the love of God. And we uh, preach because we've been called by a God whose promises never run short. So lean into that call, especially when, when things get really difficult and when people start bristling at, at, the, at the good news of Jesus. Um, you're in good company. When you're, uh, again, go back to John Lewis, when we're causing that kind of good trouble, we're in good company with a a long line of faithful witnesses to the good news of Jesus. Uh, So trust what God is doing in that moment. And and draw people in, draw them into that space that that you're creating there. Yeah. When I mentioned the article that that you wrote, that I founded in Luther Seminary's newsletter, you you pointed out that it was actually written for uh, another site called Church Anew. Tell us what was behind the the creation of that. People are always looking for resources that's going to help people think, particularly in this complicated time in which we live. So what what was that about? Yeah, so again, back to my friend Mary Brown. had this idea, had this, this, this sense of calling to create a resource after the pandemic started for, for preachers and for lay people just trying to make sense of the world and strange world as it is. Uh, so people like Walter Brueggemann have written there. Um, I've written a few pieces. So these, these really diverse set of voices have been able to join together 
and a couple of times a week be able to, to say something about biblical texts and the moment in which we find ourselves. So talking about the pandemic, talking about racism, my colleague Aaron Rafferty wrote a beautiful piece about um, folks with disabilities and how this moment when we're, pre, uh, when we're worshiping at home can maybe reshape how we think about accessibility in our own communities. So lots of ways to expand our imaginations is at churchanew.org. You can find the blog there. So it's a great set of resources there. Appreciate that. As I say, we're always looking for more resources. Well, I appreciate you coming to spend some time with us uh, today in this conversation, Dr. Bredo, and and wish you well in your ministry and your teaching and your preaching and look forward to to other words. I've been inspired by what you've had to say. So thank you for this conversation. Yeah, well, thanks for the time, for the work that you're all doing. And thanks to all the pastors, preachers doing this week after week. It's uh, it's vital work. It's inspiring work and it's work that the world desperately needs. Amen to that. So I want to thank all those who are listening today. Thank you for joining us and we hope it's been helpful to you as well. And remember, you can always find more information at our website, umcdiscipleship.org. So until next time, we will be praying for and with you and your congregation. May God continue to bless your worship ministry as you continue to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. This podcast... Visit all our podcasts at podcasts.umcdiscipleship.org.